Revelation chapter 5 is where we're going to be reading this morning. How many of you are familiar with this symbol? Do you know where that came from? That's supposed to be one of the wings of Nike, the Greek goddess of victory. The Greek goddess of victory is named Nike because the Greek word for victory is like Nike. I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's Nikao or something like that. My prayer is that after this morning, as we look into Revelation 5, whenever you see this, you'll think of the victor. Because the word is used in chapter 5 to talk about what the Lord Jesus Christ has done for us. We live in a world that's... uh, it depends on your perspective. When you're younger, you still have dreams and you think you still have hopes. And I didn't mean that the way it came out. But in a... In a sense, when you're younger, you still think all these things are possible. But as you get older you realize that a lot of your dreams are not going to happen. You might be like the person, I don't know who it was, but said, the only thing standing between me and happiness is reality. (laughs) Or you might be a little more skeptical even than that. And as Woody Allen said, the more, more than any time in world history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. But as the world progresses, and the older you get, the more you realize that this world is not going to work out its own problems. The world's a mess and nobody really can fix it. Now, when this book of the Revelation was written, John wrote this because of what he saw. God gave Jesus a revelation, we see in chapter 1, verse 1, to give to John for the churches to show them the things that would soon take place. Now, we think things are bad sometimes for us today, and we're pretty coddled in America. We are, we are a blessed nation. God has blessed this nation. We have blessings that a large portion of this, the world does not experience. And yet even now we look into, and it seems to be that the seams are kind of coming apart. But back when this was given, the context of this is, is found in about 80 A.D. or 85 A.D. The, the, the emperor's name was Domitian or Domitian. I'm not sure how you pronounce that name. Some of you scholars would know better than that. But... He was the the king then, the the Caesar then, and things were in a terrible situation. Someone named Tacitus, a few years after this, about 25 years after this book was given, wrote this about what it was like to be a Christian during the time of Nero, which was about 20 to 30 years before the book of the Revelation was given. And he talks about the Christians, besides being put to death, the Christians were made to serve as objects of amusement, They were clad in hides of beasts and torn to death by dogs. Others were crucified. Others set on fire to serve to illuminate the night when the daylight failed. Being a Christian was just 
the best. It was a capital offense. And though not all the time was the persecution intense and deliberate, it was kind of a don't ask, don't tell a lot that, d- during that period in history. If it was found that you were a Christian or if you were denounced as being a Christian, you were supposed to pay the price for your confession of faith in Jesus Christ. And if you did not recant, you received the punishment. But the good news in the book of Revelation is God showing these people living at this time when things were coming apart, when things were really bad, that the outcome was assured. The outcome was secure. And that they didn't have to worry about it. Chapter 1, verse 1, just to get us to the context of Revelation 5 before I read it. 1, verse 1, is the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave Him to show His servants the things that must take place soon. And then God sees this glorified Christ who gives Him a message for the seven churches. And there's a message and and Jeff went through all these messages to these seven churches. And then last week Jeff spoke about in John chapter 4, God, Jesus calls John up to heaven to see what must take place after this. And chapters 4 and 5 are one scene of the throne room of God. And last week we saw the Creator. Well, we didn't see it. In fact, John doesn't even describe Him specifically. But we see the scene around the throne where God the Father, the Creator, is praised. And at the end of chapter 4, we see this declaration by the elders and the four living beings, Worthy are You, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for You created all things, and by Your will they existed and were created. And we then, in this context of this worship of the One on the throne, we come to chapter 5, verse 1. And we we read this. Then I saw in the right hand of Him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scrolls and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God set out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation." And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. 
And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. This is God's Word. We're going to look at this passage in three sections. We'll look at the problem, the conqueror, and the praise that the conqueror receives. Chapter one or chapter five, verse one here. In the right hand of God on the throne, seated there, and this is the only part of his being that's even mentioned specifically is the hand of God, the right hand symbolizing the power, the, the place of authority and power. There's this seal written within and on the back, and it, or the scroll, and it's sealed up with seven seals. This mighty angel says, who is worthy to take, op, take the scroll and open the seals? What is this scroll? Now remember, the book of the Revelation, is, it's apocalyptic literature. Which means basically, it's not exact. Everything you see in the book of the Revelation isn't exactly something that's there, but it represents something. And to understand the, the message of the book, you have to understand what these things represent. And that's not necessarily an easy task, as I've discovered this week. There are a lot of opinions about what this scroll is. Lots of different opinions by honest scholars. But the, the main thing that comes out here, if you read through the book of the Revelation and you get to about chapter 11, toward the end of chapter 11, you realize that when this scroll is finally, all the seals are broken and this scroll is open and all the angels sound their trumpets, at the last, the end of the seventh trumpet, there's an announcement set that says, the kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Okay? So, whatever it is, whatever your opinion about what it is, it has something to do with the plan of God at the end of the ages to reclaim the earth and take it back from evil so that it can be a place where righteousness reigns. Okay? It involves the judgment of evil, it, it involves the establishment of God's kingdom, and it involves the title of the earth being given back to man who lost it when he decided to do things the way he wanted to do them instead of the way God wanted to do them. And then the whole world ended up under the control of the evil one. So, whatever you think about the scroll, we do know it has especially something to do with the government of God being unfolded at the end of time so that the earth can be reclaimed and taken back and put in its right put in its rightful use. And then we read in verse 3, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or look into it. Now it's not talking about being physically strong enough to do it. But in verse 2, the word worthy is used. Who's worthy to open it? And then again in verse five, when the angel or verse four, John begins to weep loudly because no one's found worthy to open the scroll. Now God is sovereign. God can do whatever he wants, and yet in his divine wisdom, he chose to work with humanity to bring about his plan on the earth. And humanity rejected him and lost the title. And so now God is choosing to limit himself in a sense 
to a human being who can come and with Him establish righteousness and justice on the earth. And the statement is made there, no one in all of creation, from Adam to you and me, could stand before God and say, I'll take that responsibility. And I will with you bring about the reestablishment of righteousness on the earth. No one is worthy. In heaven, on earth, or under the earth, no one's worthy. And so John begins to weep loudly in verse 4 because no one was found worthy to open the scroll. Now, if you're like me, why would John be weeping? God has taken him to heaven. He's seen the glory of God. He walked with the Lord Jesus Christ on the earth. He saw the Lord Jesus Christ raised from the dead. He saw what happened in the book of Acts as the Gospel went forth. And yet here he is in heaven seeing this scene and realizing that there is no one in all of humanity that is worthy to open the scroll. He is, he is overcome by the sense of the futility of human effort apart from God's intervention. And he weeps loudly. He doesn't just weep. He doesn't just cry, shed a few tears. He weeps loudly. The intensity of this vision and the realization that the reclamation of the earth cannot take place unless there's somebody worthy to open this, 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 break the seals and open the scroll. So there's a big problem there. We've read the Bible. We know the Gospel. We know it's going to work out okay. But at this point, at the end of verse 4, there's nobody yet that's presented that can accomplish this. And then, one of the elders in verse 5 says to John, Weep no more. You could preach a whole... Jesse, Jesse and I could both probably preach a whole sermon on that. Weep no more. The lion is conquered. Whatever your despair, whatever your despondency, whatever your hopelessness, whatever your hopeless situation, weep no, there's no more reason to weep. Now that doesn't mean we don't cry in difficult situations, in sad situations, but there's no more despair. Why? Because the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that He can open the scroll and its seven seals. God's promise given that the Messiah would come and establish righteousness in Israel now is seen. There is someone who is worthy to open the scrolls. There is a conqueror. Humanity is no longer left to itself. So as we look at this conqueror in verse 5, let's just ask these questions. Who, what, when, why? Where and how? Those are good questions to ask whenever we're reading the Scripture. And as I read this, the, the elder says to, to John, Weep no more. Behold, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Who conquered? It's the Lion of the tribe of Judah. This is the only time in Scripture that Jesus is referred to as the Lion of Judah. Okay? But it goes clear back to Genesis chapter 49 when Jacob is, is dying and he's blessing his kids and he goes to Judah in chapter, nine, or chapter 49 verses 9 and 10. He says, you are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey. And he goes on, like a lion he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to rouse him? And then he says, the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nations shall be his. So clear back in Genesis, by the Holy Spirit, 
God's prompting, Jacob prophesies that out of this tribe of Judah, a man will come with the DNA of Judah. It can be traced back to Judah. And he will reign. And the obedience of the nations shall be his. He has overcome. Nikao, Nike. He has overcome. He has conquered. It's translated overcome in some translations. Victor. He is victorious in others. He has conquered. But that's the sense of the word. It's the idea of, of conquering. Now you remember in every one of the letters that Jeff went through with us in chapters 2 and 3 to each one of these churches, each message, the promises to who? To Him who overcomes. Who conquers. In one of those, in verse 31 of chapter 3, the promise is given specifically like this. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as, also, as I also conquered and sat down with my Father on His throne. So Christ has conquered. He is victorious. He is the conqueror. What did He conquer? It says He's conquered, but it doesn't say what He conquered. Well, if we go back through Scriptures, we can find several things that the lion conquered. Jesus Himself, just before He went to the cross, looking forward and prophesying, said in John 16.3, I have conquered the world. I've overcome the world. Now, by the world, it's not talking about human governments per se at that particular time. But the world is used in Scripture to describe all of human activity apart from God as its source and its objective. Everything we do as human beings, it can be really good stuff. Anything you and I do, anything our society does, anything groups of people do and accomplish, this whole system where God is not at the center, and this is not the focus and the objective of activity, is a part of what we call the world. It's an entire system. And Galatians 1.4 tells us that Jesus gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. He has conquered the system that has set itself up against God. He's also conquered Satan. In Hebrews, it says, since the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus took partook of the same things so that through death He might destroy, literally render powerless, the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. The Lion of Judah not only conquered the world, He conquered the one who's in control of the world. Paul says, the whole world lies under the control of the evil one. The Lion of Judah conquered Satan and rendered him powerless. Now, he doesn't seem powerless, but he cannot stand now before the conqueror. Now when we say, just a little kind of a sidetrack, but not for, not for very long. When we say the Lion of Judah has conquered, it doesn't mean he won the first game in a three out of five series or he won the first two games in a seven game series. He conquered once for all forever. That's the sense of this here. He is victorious forever. He didn't just win a game. So today, he has already rendered powerless Satan. The third thing he conquered was our flesh. I don't know if you knew that. Romans 6.6 6 tells us that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin 
might be rendered powerless, NIV says. That's the same word as it's used for what He did to Satan. He rendered our flesh powerless. That's why, as believers, we can't ever say, well, I just can't help it. Because Christ has conquered our flesh. He also conquered death. Romans 6, 9, we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over Him. No longer has authority over Him. It's, Paul says in 2 Timothy 1, verse 10, that the Lord Jesus Christ abolished death. That is, the same word again, He rendered powerless death. Now you and I are going to die unless the Lord calls us home before that. But death doesn't have power over us. It can kill us, but it can't keep us dead because Christ has conquered death. Death is not the end. That's why Paul says to the church in the Thessalonians when he wrote to them, he says, I don't want you to grieve like everybody else who has no hope. When your loved ones die in the Lord, that's not the end. That's the end of their earthly life, but that's not the end. Death hasn't won because the Lion of Judah has conquered death. So He's the supreme victor. He's conquered the world. He's conquered Satan. He's conquered our flesh. He's conquered death. So when Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, He didn't mean it's over. He meant it's accomplished. He accomplished everything. It's not finished like the TV show's over. But it's finished like a masterpiece, a work of art. The last brush stroke has been given. Or the last modeling of the clay has been finished. Or the last chink of the chisel on the, on the statue. The masterpiece is finished. When Christ gave up His life on the cross and said, it is finished, it's achieved. I have conquered. So when Jesus later on in Matthew 28, verse 18 and 19 and 20, when He's given that commission to His disciples, when He says, all authority is given to Me on heaven and on earth, He meant it because He had already conquered. He had died and given up His life. Paul says that Christ is the head of all rule and authority in Colossians chapter 2. And in Ephesians 1, we saw that if Several weeks ago on, on Wednesday night, God raised Christ from the dead and seated Him at His right hand far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. Talk about victory. He is conquered. Now, I've alluded to it already, but how did He conquer? Did He come with a whole bunch of angels and have this great battle, you know, the greatest video game of all time with all these... Guys shooting and blowing things up and all that. It's interesting here. The lion, or the, excuse me, the elder says, Weep no more, in verse 5. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then what happens in verse 6? Do we see a lion? No, we see a lamb. Not only a lamb, John uses the word in the Greek for little lamb. It's not just a regular lamb. It's diminutive. It's a little lamb. So, the Lion of Judah has conquered. And so John turns to look at this conqueror and what does he see? A little lamb standing there looking like it had been slain. Now, there isn't really a little lamb in heaven 
Okay? It's symbolic of the Son of God. But every person who knew the Jewish uh, sacrificial system in the Old Testament knew what a little slain lamb represented. It was what you did to acknowledge before God your sin and look to Him for forgiveness for, for your sins. And so, how did this Lion of Judah conquer? The Lion, the most powerful beast in all of creation, conquered by being the most weak animal in all of creation. This little lamb. So between the throne and the four living creatures, verse 6, and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. That, that, that's a, a weird picture there. But a horn for the Jews was a symbol of strength. Seven is a perfect number. So basically, this is a symbol. There isn't really a little lamb running around in heaven with seven horns and seven eyes running around the throne. But it's symbolic of the Son of God, seven horns, all-powerful, seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth, omnipresent in every place who has conquered. And this Lamb, verse 7, he goes and he takes the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And what happens? They fall down and they worship him. And they talk about why he conquered. He conquered because of his death. He disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them on the cross, Colossians tells us. And they sing this song, verse 9. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. They're declaring His worth. If anybody can do it, you can do it. You have the right to do it. You have the, the character to do it. You have accomplished what's necessary, so you have the right to do it. Why? For you were slain. Why is He worthy to open the scrolls? Why is He early, worthy to institute the reclamation progress for planet Earth? and judge evil, and establish righteousness. Why is He worthy to do that? Because He was slain. Now, not just... Everybody dies. So it's not just the death that made Him worthy. But we know how He died. And I don't have it written down here. I'll see if I can do it from memory here. But in Philippians chapter 2, it says, He took on the form of a servant... And being found in the form of a servant, Jesus humbled Himself and became obedient to death, even death on the cross. The death He died was a death He died because He refused at any point in time to do His own will to save His own skin. He did the will of God even though it cost Him His life. He's the only person in all of history throughout all of His life to always obey God and never do what He wanted to do just because He wanted to do it. None of us can say that. I can't say it. I know you can't say it. We have all gone our own way. We've all justified. We've all spun it. We've all explained it. We've all excused it. But when push comes to shove, we all have to admit that there have been times in our lives, in fact, the very course of our life has been characterized by me doing what I want to do. Now, I might want to do good things. I might want to do nice things. I might want to help other people. But I'm the one deciding what I'm going to do. And He was slain 
after He lived a perfect life. Once made perfect, Hebrews says, He became the source of eternal life. He tasted every possible temptation any human being could ever face. And He came out every time by saying yes to the Father and no to Himself. And when He was there in the Garden of Eden, or in the Garden of Gethsemane, weeping, sweating as it were, great drops of blood, what is He saying? Father, if it's possible, take this cup from Me. If there's any way for me to not do this, I would really appreciate it if you'd let me out of it. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. And then he went and he died. And by that death, he conquered the world and Satan and our flesh and, and death. And what did he do here? You were slain. By your blood, you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priest to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. How and when and where did he conquer? At the cross, by giving up his life in obedience to the Father. The perfect life, the sinless life, as a sacrifice for you and for me. Why did he do it? By your blood, you ransomed people for God. We talk about selling your soul to the devil. You know, there's that. You know, there's stories about it. You know, if somebody sells their soul to the devil. The reality is, our souls are already sold to the devil. We gave up our soul a long time ago when we chose to buy into what Adam had done. We were born with that sin nature, and as soon as we could choose, we chose that life of rebellion against God. And the Lamb, by His death, why did He conquer? He did all that to ransom a people for God. We were sold into slavery. And the conquering lion, as a lamb, bought us back for God. He ransomed us for God. And notice, He ransomed them for God. He didn't save you so you can have a happy life. Now, you will have a joyful life in Christ, but He didn't just save you so you could be happy. He saved you. It says He ransomed people for God. You have been saved. The blood of Christ has been shed for you. Your sins have been forgiven. You have been bought for God. Paul says to the Corinthians in chapter 6, verse 20 of the 1 Corinthians, you're not your own. You've been bought with a price. Your life is not yours. Your life is His. Not only did God create you, you couldn't create yourself, but He created you. Then you got yourself in this mess because of your sin, and you're a slave to sin, and you can't get out of it, and He redeems you out of that. He buys you back for God. He's got every right to your life. You're not your own. He ransomed them for God. What kind of people? From every tribe and language and people and nation. A description that goes from smaller to bigger to bigger to bigger. Okay? Every little tribe, everybody who spoke the same language, a people, group, and then a nation. See this expansion. And there are people in God's kingdom from every people, tribe, language, and nation. This is the impetus for world missions. This is why people go and proclaim the gospel. 
Jesus told him in the book of Mark, he took, Mark records it when he's speaking to the disciples, he says, preach the gospel to every creature. Announce this good news to every creature. And he tells the, the disciples in the book of Acts, the chap, first chapter of the book of Acts, he says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. The gospel is for all. The announcement of the gospel is for all. Though it does not say here that you were slain and by your blood you ransomed every tribe, language, people, and nation. Not everyone has been ransomed. But people from every possible group has been ransomed. Think about this for a minute. Think of the implications for a minute. I'm not trying... Well, maybe I am trying to be just to get the point across. I'm not trying to be obnoxious, but if you're a child of God, if you have been bought and redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, you have more in common with the saved child of an illegal immigrant than you do with the most staunch Republican who's not saved in the United States. If you're a Republican. If you're a libertarian, pick a libertarian. Or a Democrat, pick Democrat. Just guessing from what I've heard that most of you are probably a little bit to the right of center. But the reality is, you share more with the black child in Rwanda who believes in Jesus Christ than you do with your neighbor who loves the same football team as you and watches the same TV shows as you and shares all these American culture things with you. Once you really understand the Gospel of Jesus Christ, you're going to go to heaven and you're going to dance with people that you've never seen before that are so different than you, but you share this one thing in common. You were ransomed by the Lamb for God and you both know it. And that's your life for eternity. You were slain. You ransomed people for God. Past tense completed. And then verse 10, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. This is completed work. When you come to Christ, when you repent and believe in what Christ has done for you, and you recognize that God has called you for God and He's purchased you for God, you realize that you're not just one person on your own living for Jesus until He comes back and takes you to heaven. This kind of individualistic American mentality about life. You're a part of a kingdom. Well, what does it mean if you're a part of a kingdom? It means there's a king. It means there are rules. You're under His reign. And it means you have fellow citizens that you work with and work for toward a common good. Your salvation has brought you into a kingdom. You have been made a kingdom. And that kingdom consists of priests to our God. And the priests did two things, basically. The priests offered praise to God and the priests talked to other people about what God expected. Those are the two basic functions of a priest. And so what the Lamb did in his, by His death, bought us for God and made us into a kingdom and priest to our God. This is why church life is so important. We get to learn how to live as part of a kingdom. Not that the church is the kingdom, but we are the body of Christ under the rule and authority of Christ. And then the end of verse 10 
what's come, what's been said about the Lamb up to this point is past tense. It's accomplished. It's completed. It's finished. But there's something future at the end of verse 10. They, that is, those that He has redeemed and bought, they shall reign on the earth. That's future tense. The whole book of the Revelation is about that. The, the declaration, the presentation of the One who has accomplished all this, and then the outworking of what He's accomplished on the earth until chapter 11 and then beyond. The kingdom of this world has now become the kingdom of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. And then later on we see there are those who reign with Him on the earth. So there's a future for us that hasn't been realized yet that we shall reign with Him those who have been bought by Him. Then He looked, verse 11. This, this is a, quite a worship service. There's three songs here. It depends on the translation. This ESV talks about the new song that was sung that we just looked at by the, the um, four living creatures and the 24 elders. And then it expands to the next group. And some translations say they were singing. Some says they were saying. I think they were doing both. They were saying what they were singing. What the next group larger? What do we see around the throne? Many angels, myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. There were quite a few, basically. There were lots and lots of them. They're just and they're what are they saying? Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. You and I don't talk like that, right? I mean, we we do and we sing the songs once in a while, but when you look at what is what are they saying? Basically, and I hope I'm, I've got this right, but basically they're saying he gets everything. You know, I'm sorry I use a lot of sports illustrations. That's, I'm a man. That's just the way I'm kind of wired. But it could be prizes for music or art or whatever. But you, you have a contest. You have a, a tournament or something. They, the one guy, he's just so good, so much better than everybody else. Or the one gal, so much better than everybody else. They win all the medals. They get all the awards. Nobody else gets anything. Most valuable player, you know, and best sportsman and all whatever, whatever awards there are, they win them all. And I think that's what's being said here. Of all of the creatures, and He's God and man at the same time, you win them all. You get all the awards. You get all the ribbons. You get all the trophies. You get all the prize money. Whatever we can think of, it's yours. That's what I'm seeing here. Power. That, the word's authority. You're the one. You, need to, you decide. You decide what needs to be done. You're worthy. It's, nobody else is worthy. You've, you've earned it. You've showed yourself that you, you're worthy of this. It's all yours. All the wealth. All the wisdom. All the might. All the honor. All the glory. All the blessing. It's all yours. Take it. You're the only one who's worthy. Nobody else can hold a candle to you. You got all the votes. <laughs> That's what they're saying there, I think. And then the third song, it gets bigger yet. First, you've got the four living beings and the 24 elders around the throne with the Lamb. Then you've got all the angels, the myriads of angels. And now it's every creature. John hears every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them. Could you imagine? to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And now the worship is for both of them. Again, another demonstration that Jesus is God. 
He's worthy of the praise that God receives. But here at the throne, Him who's seated on the throne and the Lamb, that's symbolic of the Father and the Son, they're receiving all the praise of all of creation. I went to a ball game a couple weeks ago. There were about 50,000 people there and they made a lot of noise. Can you imagine when everybody on the planet from the time of Adam all the way up to today, all of them together saying the same thing to Him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. Not just now, but forever and ever. You're worthy of everything. That's what we were made for, people. That's what we were created for. That's the only place you and I will ever find our ultimate meaning. Before God, praising Him and telling Him that He's worth everything. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. This is the God we serve. This is the praise that's worthy. The elders, the angels, all of creation are singing. I want you to notice just a couple things about this worship. The atoning death of Jesus Christ is at the center of true worship. In in this praise and worship, they are declaring Him worthy because of what He did, because He was slain. He was slain to redeem people for God. Now, I don't know about your view of Jesus. Some of you think he was a good man. He did a lot of good things. He showed a lot of compassion. He took kids on his lap. You know, we know he's a sensitive guy. We know he cared for women who were women of ill repute and he treated them with respect. We know he wouldn't put up with injustice. So he was a good man. And he he was a great teacher. He was very intelligent. So we'll we'll give him that. And And then even when we come to Christ, a lot of times we stop at the fact that He died for our sins. And He did. And He made it possible for us to go to heaven. And we love Him and we thank Him for that. But we're here looking at something bigger than that. He is the one who's going to reclaim creation and put it back the way it ought to be because of what He did. This is the one we worship. I don't know how big your Jesus is, but He is worthy of all praise. We don't worship Him because He was a good man, though He was. We don't worship Him because He helps, helps us with our problems, but He does. We thank Him for that, but that's not why we worship Him. We don't worship Him because He makes us feel better, though He does. He gives us joy. And when we face difficult situations, we realize there's hope because of Him, and we thank Him for that. But we worship Him because He was slain. Because He was obedient unto death. He lived a perfect life and gave that life up to accomplish the will of the Father. And notice through this worship here, when we talk about you're worthy to receive all these things, that true worship involves acknowledging that Christ deserves everything. Personal surrender is at the heart of true worship. You can sing worship songs and really be into them and really feel good about them and sing all these things about Jesus and not be worshiping at all if it doesn't involve the sacrifice of your agenda before the throne of God and at the cross. True worship, true worship involves personal surrender. You can sing the worship songs and not be worshiping at all if your heart has not been given to Him. 
So I don't agree with Woody Allen. I agree we're at a crossroads. But I don't think the choice is between total despair and annihilation. The choice is between life and death. And we have that choice because He has conquered. And every time I look at a Nike swoosh again, I'm going to think of that Greek word, nikao, the declaration that the Lion of Judah has conquered. The Lamb has been slain. The final act will be worked out. And think if you were in that at that time in history. These guys are being persecuted, giving up their lives. They're seeing their fellow believers being tortured and killed. Isn't that good news? To know that the Lamb has conquered and that He is going to open that scroll. He's going to break those seals. He's going to bring about the establishment of righteousness on the earth. And wickedness will be judged and evil will be destroyed. And it says in somewhere in, in Revelation 11, He will destroy those who have destroyed the earth. There, it's going to be all taken care of. And if you haven't surrendered yourself to the One who created you and gave His life for you, the One to whom you're going to have to give an account one day, I hope that you'll acknowledge your hopelessness apart from Christ and that you'll repent of your self-reliance and you'll abandon yourself to the One who conquered evil by His own death. And that you'll join us in acknowledging that Jesus Christ is worthy. But if you're already a child of God, don't give up. Don't give out. Don't give in to temptation. Don't do it. It's not worth it. It's all going to be worth it. Know that everything that is wrong will be made right. Know that everything you're suffering because you have chosen Christ over your own agenda will be worth it. That when He restores all things, you will reign with Him. No matter how weak you feel today, no matter how depressed you might feel today, no matter how discouraged you might feel today, some of us who are getting close to the end of our lives, no matter how little you can do now and you're just kind of worn out, know that all of that's going to be worth it because we will reign with Him. Humanity was at a, in a terrible place. God had to step in, so He came in the person of His Son. And He did what no human being could do to get back what you and I lost. It's a no-brainer. It really is. Let's pray. Lord, it's a no-brainer and yet we can't even grasp that unless You give us the ability. And I pray for those here this morning who may in their, may in their heads agree, may assent intellectually to the reality of what You've done, but whose hearts have not been transformed. Lord, only You can do that and I pray the working of Your power and Your grace to call people to Yourself. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning who are under the gun, perhaps for different reasons, Lord, physical, emotional, mental, financial. Lord, maybe choices have been made for you that have cost them things. Lord, may they know that you will make all of those things work out for their good and for your glory. Most of all, we want to praise you again. And tell you, Lord Jesus, You're worthy of everything. Take it all. Take all the honor. Take all the blessings. 
take all the the resources. It's all yours anyway. You're worthy of it. You've earned it at the cross. And we just want to spend the rest of our lives just telling you how worthy you are in anticipation of the day when you put everything back the way it's supposed to be and let us be a part of it. And we're just almost giddy when we think of it, Lord, when we really get a hold of that. And I pray that enthusiasm and anticipation would just pervade your people here in this place, Lord. I want to pray for Myrna's brother. Don't know if he knows you, Lord, but pray that you'd call him and and just confirm your plans for him as he is struggling with life itself, Lord, that he might know that death has been conquered in Christ. And we pray too, Lord, as we go from this place too, for our brothers and sisters all along the coast of West Florida, that you would in this time of, of real trial, use them to proclaim Jesus Christ to their neighbors and friends. We just thank you, Lord, that everything that the enemy tries to bring about to beat your people into submission, you use to make us more and more holy. And we just thank you for that and praise you as we leave this place. In Jesus' name, amen.